so that has that is part of the, the problem is that we need to be really thinking about all of these pieces of the puzzle and trying to get them together in one in in one management that will overall even though individually each of those will not provide the complete answer combined it will be better hello folks and welcome to the growing point podcast i'm your host jeremy boychin our goal with this podcast is simple to provide Alberta farmers and agronomists with timely, relevant, and valuable agronomic knowledge through interviews with experts in various fields of agriculture. We hope the agronomic information from this and future podcasts brings value to you and your farm. In this episode, we speak to Dr. Anita Babel. Anita is a professor at the Department of Plant Science at the University of Manitoba, working in the area of wheat breeding and genetics. Her recent work focuses on genetics of wheat resistance to Fusarium head blight. In this podcast, we chat about challenges of breeding for Fusarium head blight resistance, the role different chemotypes and species play, how farm management plays a role in the fight against Fusarium head blight, and what the future holds for disease resistance. Dr. Babel does a great job explaining this very complex problem, so I hope you all enjoy the conversation. All right. Here we go. All right. Well, welcome. Thank you, Anita, for joining me today. Um, and maybe for those who don't know you, can you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Anita Brule Babel, and I'm a professor at the University of Manitoba. I work as a wheat breeder, and I do a lot of work on breeding for disease resistance in wheat. So we're here to talk about Fusarium head blight resistance um, and I know I've got a few questions and I've heard the question um, bumped around a few times, you know, why aren't we at the level of, of rust when it comes to resistance of Fusarium? Why is it lagging behind? I mean, we've seen it as an issue in North America for quite some time. So, I mean, before we get too far into that, maybe we should ask the question of when a disease does when a disease uh, impacts a crop, when it when it first meet, re, meets that crop, how does a crop respond to that? And maybe not fusarium specific, but in general, what's the response of plants when a disease hits them? A lot of it will depend on the specific pathogen plant interactions. So um, in situations where you have very good resistance, usually the plant will um, when it encounters a pathogen, it will cascade a bunch of resistance genes which will help it fight against that pathogen. Uh, with Fusarium, it's quite a different type of pathogen, and so the plant disease response is different than it would be, for instance, with something like rust resistance that uh, basically incorporates a hypersensitive reaction. So basically what the a rust reaction does, it's because the bio, rust is a biotroph. And so the plant, when it encounters rust, it actually goes through a series of programmed cell death so that it, because the rust pathogen requires living cells in order to live. With fusarium, we've got the opposite thing where fusarium thrives on dead tissue. And so it actually produces toxins that kill plant tissue so that it can feed on the plant tissue. So the plant's response type is quite different because 
uh, fusarium is a necrotroph instead of a biotroph. And so the, the plant's um, immune system or response is quite different than it would be with something like rust. So I imagine that completely changes how the plant needs to respond in terms of, of genetics and resistance to kind of keep that, that disease at bay. That's right. And again, with fusarium head blight in, in, uh, in wheat, what we find is we have a lot of resistance genes, each with small effect. And together they work to make a plant that's more resistant. But it's still uh, a very different approach where with something like rust, where you may have um, one or, or a few major genes that can provide essentially complete immunity to the plant. That's not what's, what is happening with fusarium at all. It's, it's interesting. As soon as you um, talked about biotroph and, and kind of plants sacrificing cells to defend the rest of the plant. I, I remember this picture from, from biology or university where, you know, you could see each cell lined up and, you know, the disease impacts and it starts killing off those surrounding cells so it won't get further into the plant. But yeah, what you're saying is, is that kind of process does not play a role in fusarium resistance at all. In, in like with fusarium, there's only a very, very short period of where the pathogen acts like a biotroph and the rest of the time it's a necrotroph. And so it is quite different in terms of how the plant needs to respond to invasion by that particular pathogen. So I imagine this changes the way that you would breed germplasm for resistance. Um, the direction you take for, for rust would be very different from fusarium then? Yeah, well, there with fusarium, again, we're looking at because we have uh, many, many different genes that are involved, and we refer to it as a quantitative type of resistance. So multiple genes, each with small effects, and together they work to improve the plant's resistance. But a single gene or even a few major genes are usually not sufficient to provide uh, resistance. The other thing that we have with fusarium is we really don't have a truly immune resistance to fusarium. We have um, resistances that can either uh, reduce potential initial infection or they can reduce spread within the plant spike. Um, some of them can reduce the rate of toxin accumulation or the rate of kernel damage, but each of those types of resistance um, can be under different genetic control. So you have combinations of resistance genes that are important in order to make the plant um, more resistant to the pathogen. So are we, are we talking about dozens of genes? Are we talking about thousands of genes? And, and I guess for those who maybe aren't deep into the genetics, what, what does that mean? Like what is, what is typical for what a resistance gene profile looks like? For fusarium specifically? Are you? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, with fusarium, we have we have um, done a lot of what people refer to as quantitative trait loci analyses. So basically, trying to find regions in the wheat genome that confer better resistance to fusarium. And if you go through the literature and sum up all the different studies, you'll find that. Um, over a hundred genes have been identified that confer some level of resistance, and they're they're on every single chromosome in the genome. And so it is a, it's a fairly complicated complex 
uh, we have a few genes that have, you know, that might explain 20 to 25 percent of the resistance, or, or, but a lot of them have even smaller levels of effects. So, you know, um, in a typical resistance profile, you're probably looking at having to combine at least five or more genes in order to get some decent level of resistance in it. So the varieties that we work with now that maybe have a, an MR to, to Fusarium, do we have an idea of how many genes are working in that type of resistance? Can we quantify it that way? Well, you can definitely do studies to try and, and get that information out. And so there's been lots of studies, even with the new form, new varieties that we have um, to identify the major regions that, that can explain a, a larger portion of the resistance. Um, there's a lot of things that we still don't always know, um, how they're interacting in the genetic background that you're putting these genes into. So it is quite challenging to, to have a really good predictable form of resistance uh, without having to do a lot of selection and a lot of testing to make sure that you can identify those plants that are more resistant. So when, when we're working to develop germplasm to turn that into a potential variety, is there a certain threshold that we look for in terms of the amount of, of genes in that germplasm before we want to tr try and take it to variety? Like what, what does that threshold look like for, for transfer or is there? I don't know that there's a real threshold. I mean, if you look at what breeders have to do, I mean, we have to generate not only something that's resistant to fusarium, but we also have to have resistance to other diseases. We have to have plants that mature within a particular time period that have a particular yield and agronomic performance and that meet a quality profile. So we're already looking at many, many, many genes that we're having to combine into a genotype. And so... Uh, some of the uh, early sources of resistance that were used to breed for, for uh, fusarium resistance were not in well-adapted wheat varieties. And so we were in a situation where, yes, we can use these sources of resistance, but when you make a cross, essentially now you have to do a whole bunch of other back crossing with selection for resistance to get back to the type that you originally had, you know, with good yield, good agronomic performance, good quality within that. So there's a lot of what we refer to as linkage drag. When you bring in uh, genes from um, less well-adapted genotype or plant type, that you have a lot of work to get back to an acceptable plant type while you're selecting for the specific genes that you tried to transfer. And so that's a very long process. And, you know, the initial uh, materials that we were using in the 90s, um, you know, a lot of those were not really well adapted materials. I think now we have a much better suite of, of materials that have better adaptation and better resistance incorporated into them. So we're able to make progress a bit more quickly now by choosing your germplasm carefully and trying to find genotypes that have different genes so that when you combine them together, you can select for that combination that works for you. Interesting. I, you, before you talked a little bit about the different types of resistance for infection, um, for, for dawn accumulation, does that play a role in germplasm selection? And does that in does, do we try and select for specific ones or are we trying to select for overarching genes that cover all of them? 
Well, I think that uh, whenever you're assessing materials that you're going to use in your crossing, you'll look at all the different characteristics and mechanisms as much as you know about them. A lot of times we're dealing with materials that, yeah, we we know that the data for this variety tells us that it performs well in these characteristics, but we don't always know which genes are contributing those characteristics. Without having done a good genetic analysis, we often don't know. So um, we have to work within that. If we've identified um, molecular markers that are linked to specific genes, then we can do an analysis of germplasm to determine which alleles we have for a particular gene. That will help us pick the combinations that work well or they're more likely to combine well to produce a, a better variety. But that's a, a time-consuming process and it requires those additional resources in order to be able to do that. Um, breeding programs are using the, all of those tools to try and, and uh, first of all, identify the best materials to use and also to apply those tools to help with selection. In the end, though, we still are in a situation where we have to test in the field to see whether all that selection with all those tools has actually really truly resulted in something that is better. And um, that's part of what um, I run a, a Fusarium headlight screening nursery out of Carmen, Manitoba, that we essentially evaluate materials from all the wheat breeders in Western Canada uh, in the field in, in a controlled inoculated nursery to identify the materials that have the best resistance. And we provide the data that helps to support um, early generation selection for better resistance and also to support variety registration. So we generate that data to help support um, the breeders in identifying what is worth moving forward for variety registration and provides the, uh, the data that goes into their official data packages for them to, to apply for registration as well. So a breeder works through the germplasm to make sure that it, it holds the genetics that it's hoping they we're hoping has resistance to, to fusarium. It takes many years, a lot of resources to get to that point. A, a, a potential variety is developed and then put into your nursery. How long does it sit in that nursery? And, and maybe what are the success rates if you know those numbers? And maybe even beyond there, if there's low success rates, what's the typical reason for failure? Well, I think that like my nursery actually has multiple sections to it. So um, the material that's closest to variety registration is what is in the variety registration trials or used to be called the co-op co trials. And um, the number of years of, or data, uh, site years of data that are required are set by the variety registration committees in terms of determining how, what's the minimum data set that they require. So for the red spring wheats, for instance, materials have to be tested uh, for three years in these trials. And I'm just doing the fusarium head blight portion. Those trials are also testing materials in other types of trials for rust, uh, for agronomic characteristics, et cetera, across the prairies. And so the combination of all of that data are used then to actually determine whether something has merit or not. And we have a series of standards that those varieties need to meet um, in agronomics, in disease resistance, and in quality, in end-use quality, before they are actually deemed acceptable for registration. So 
um, something that is really, really great for Fusarium, but it's lacking someplace else, may still not be registered. So that line might be used as a parent in another cycle of breeding, but may never have made a variety. So, so the closest materials to variety registration are in that section of my nursery. I also have two other sections. Uh, one of them is what we call the hills section. So we have small rows where bre breeders send earlier generation materials to identify the material that is most resistant in their, in their germplasm or in their breeding lines. And then I have another section that I, is really a special test research section. And that's the, where we've collected a lot of the data that's been used for molecular mapping of resistance and identification of better resistance genes. And that usually involves a combination of either uh, graduate student projects or other research projects amongst the breeders that are working in that, in that area. So we provide that, uh, that critical phenotypic data to support that other research as well. Okay, so I guess leading on to the next question, knowing the challenge of, of breeding for Fusarium hemblight resistance, knowing that it's a complex array of, of, of genetics that goes into it, um, is, is I guess where, um, where does the, the two different types of, of um, uh, 15A and 3A Dawn play a role in this? Does it play a role in terms of resistance, knowing that we're having more trouble with, with one than the other, um, or does it play a role at all? Well, um, with Fusarium hip blight, we refer to 15A Dawn and 3A Dawn as basically different chemotypes of uh, the Fusarium germaniarum pathogen. And there are multiple species of Fusarium, but where 15A Dawn and 3A Dawn um, are um, categorized, it's really in the Fusarium germaniarum species. So these are, these are um, the species produces Dawn or dioxin of alanol, and this is what is of concern in terms of food and feed safety. Um, the composition of those chemotypes has changed over the last 25 years. Um, primarily, we used to have mainly 15A Dawn chemotypes. Um, now we've seen the transition to more 3A Dawn chemotypes. Um, the 3A Dawn chemotypes, we, we did some studies years ago uh, looking at a, a, comparing a bunch of different isolates with these different characteristics. And what we found is that the 3A Dawn chemotypes tend to um, lead to faster progression of disease and often higher levels of Dawn as well in the grain. And so that's of concern. But from the plant's perspective, we have not really seen that um, resistance genes per se differ specifically to 15A Dawn or 3A Dawn. Um, genes that work well against 15A Dawn will work well against 3A Dawn, but keeping in mind that 3A Dawn chemotypes tend to accumulate higher levels of, of dioxin of alanol. And so uh, we have not seen a, a, a chemotype-specific form of resistance. And even across species, we've done studies with some German collaborators where the primary species that they work with is um, Fusarium calmorum. It is also a Dawn producer. 
the genes that are resistant to Graminiarum seem to also be resist, uh, um, resistant to Culmorum as well. So across species, the same genes seem to be working regardless of whether it's Graminiarum or Culmorum, which is good news from the plant breeding point of view because we know we have different species of Fusarium across Western Canada, and it would be even tougher to then have to breed for specific species resistance on top of dealing with a very complicated resistance profile that we have to work with already. So it, it, it sounds like the complexity doesn't come from, say, the, the complexity of, of fusarium per se. It comes from the genetic profile within the plant that's needed to really combat that disease. So it doesn't matter what, what species we're working with or what chemo, chemotype, it's, it's really capturing those genetics while still maintaining all of those other quality characteristics we're looking for, different diseases, different quality profiles for end use, um, <clears throat> different growth patterns. So it's, it, it's very interesting to, to know that really the complexity comes from the plant side part of trying to compete that uh, with, with Fusarium, if I, if I phrase that properly. Yeah, well, I think that, again, I think if we can re resolve the plant resistance and get the combinations together, they will work across species. Or that, that seems to be what we're seeing in, in the work that we've done. Um, there doesn't seem to be a species-specific resistances that I've been able to, to observe. So. so I guess where do we stand right now in terms of developing full resistance to fusarium head blight, are we, you know, can we can we put a meter stick to how far we are from that, or is that a, a pipe dream? Um, and you know, if 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 we can put a meter stick to it, what what do we need to get there? Well, I think there's there's um, it depends on which class of wheat you're working you're looking at as well. Um, the hard red springs we've made the most progress in, I think, to a large extent in terms of having better resistance. Um, uh, we have, in the Durham's, we've moved from a susceptible to a moderately susceptible, but we have not made as much progress, partly because we don't have as good sources of resistance in Durham wheats that we do in the spring wheats. Um, so different classes, we've made different levels of progress. And uh, the class, uh, the hard red spring, where a lot of resources have gone into, we've made the best progress. I think that we have to understand, though, even when we call something moderately resistant, in a really high, uh, what I call epidemic year, where you actually have the possibility of, sorry, my dogs come to visit. <laughs> so I did not shut the door. Um, where you have a high possibility of disease, you know, you've got hot, humid conditions or whatever, and a crop that's at the right stage for infection. Even with moderately resistant, you can still get quite significant levels of disease in the field. Um, so I think that having something that's truly immune, we haven't seen yet. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to take some time and maybe we may never see a complete immunity. But I think what we need to really be looking at is Variety resistance is one tool in the toolbox. I think we need to apply a lot of tools to make this work for us overall. And so um, variety resistance is one portion of it. I think 
um, monitoring uh, and looking at the disease forecast maps that each of the provinces produces to determine if conditions are right for fusarium infection and if your crop is at the, at the right stage for infection, that application of fungicides might be another tool that you use. Um, definitely in terms of having pre prior to even planting your crop, having used a crop rotation that was not a serial, serial rotation <laughs> will make a difference as well. So I think by implementing those multiple tools, you can have much better outcomes than if you only try to use one of those tools. So I think it's important that for this disease and for managing it on the farm, it has to be a much more holistic approach to managing it on the farm. Um, and so I think that one of the challenges has been is, uh, for instance, in Manitoba, we've been living with Fusarium griminearum for a very long time. And farmers in Manitoba, when they're looking at the variety lists, a list of varieties that are available uh, for production through Seed Manitoba, they will look at that fusarium column to determine whether they're picking something that has better resistance. I'm not sure that in other areas that haven't seen as, seen as persistent fusarium as we've seen in Manitoba, I'm, I'm not sure that fusarium is really on their on the top of their list in terms of how they're picking varieties. And so that has, that is part of the, the problem is that we need to be really thinking about all of these pieces of the puzzle and trying to get them together in one, in, in one management that will overall, even though individually, each of those will not provide the complete answer, combined it will be better. And, um, and we have to realize that we don't have complete resistance, but we also, even the fungicides that are approved for fusarium are what we call suppressive. They will slow the disease or, or reduce the rate of, of disease spread within the plant, but they don't, they don't control it or stop the disease completely. So again, even though fungicides are available, you're not going to see that efficacy to the same extent that you would expect um, if you were applying it for some other type of disease. I mean, just discussion in Alberta is <clears throat> focuses around uh, uh, fungicide timing and, and resistance, but you don't hear a lot of that discussion about, about rotation um, or about the monitoring um, or um, making sure that you're, you're checking your, your seed at the end of the year and, and seeing what kind of, of quantity of fusarium you have in there. And um, knowing that we are, you know, quite a distance, if not ever getting to a resistant variety and knowing that fusarium um, in terms of fungicide mitigation is really only suppressive, um, it, it, it makes sense to start integrating some of these practices into the farm because even if those, even if we do get a higher resistant variety, it's still not going to provide all that you need to defend yourself against fusarium. So it, it makes sense to integrate all this holistic approach. And then as we get newer resistant varieties, that just adds on top of the strength of the system already, rather than waiting for that variety to come in to kind of be the, the silver bullet per se. Yeah, and, and we can't rely on, on the silver bullet. I don't think, like, I don't know if that silver bullet will ever arrive. It may. I just, it's just very hard to predict. And I think that 
part of the thinking in terms of planning is to have in mind that this is part of a management strategy um, and that it's always there. You know, we, we've had a couple drier years over the past two years. This year, again, we have a, a wetter year. And, um, but we don't know when we seed in the spring whether it's going to be a dry year or a wet year. And in dry years, you know, we don't see a lot of fusarium and people don't get, you know, start forgetting about, okay, you know, yeah, we had really good grades, we had good crops. And then you'll get a year like this, at least in Manitoba, in some parts of Manitoba, we've had a, a lot of moisture and a lot of humidity. And I looked at the, the risk map a few days ago, and it was red throughout the entire southern part of the province. So, um, and that, that is something that if, unfortunately, we can't predict the future. So when farmers are planning, they need to plan as if they're going to have a hot year for fusarium. And if they're lucky and they don't, great. But at least they will have parts of it in place. And the variety choice is really important as a starting point. But then monitoring and keeping, you know, paying attention to what the risk maps are telling you to determine whether you actually need that fungicide or not. Um, I mean, if the risk is low, then you probably will choose not to use a fungicide. Um, the fungicides that are approved for Fusarium head blight, though, also are uh, very good for other leaf diseases. And so some farmers might plan to use a fungicide anyway to control leaf diseases, and often we'll see a, boo a yield boost because of that. And they might choose, depending on what the risk maps and what the disease levels in their field, they might choose to delay the application to control, to apply it when it's best for fusarium rather than applying it when it's best to control leaf diseases if they want to, depending on what the disease levels are like and what things are going. So scouting the fields and see and paying attention to what's been happening with the weather, paying attention to these risk maps are all part of that strategy that needs to be incorporated in there. Well, this has been very informative. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us, Anita. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say to producers before we, we finish? Well, I think just uh, forward planning and when they are looking at that variety list that's available for their region, that they don't discount that fusarium should be part of their uh, fusarium resistance column should be maybe a higher priority than in some, play, in some cases where farmers might have not taking that as the highest priority. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you again. I appreciate it. And uh, I'm sure we'll come to Anita. Thanks for listening to the Growing Point Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a second to rate, review, and share this podcast with all of your friends. This helps us grow and get our message out. You can also sign up for the Growing Point newsletter by going to Alberta Wheat or albertabarley.com and sign up for our mailing list. This will help you stay up to date on all the agronomic information we share through articles, interviews, and the newsletter. See you next time.